Chapter 18, Part 1 of Volume 2 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. Volume 2 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 18. The Kingship in France. Part 1. That the kingship occupied an important place and played an important part in the history of France is an evident and universally recognized fact. But to what causes this fact was due, and what particular characteristics gave the kingship in France that preponderating influence which, in weal and in woe, it exercised over the fortunes of the country, is still a question which has been less closely examined, and which still remains vague and obscure. The question it is which we could now shed light upon and determine with some approach to precision. We cannot properly comprehend and justly appreciate a great historical force until we have seen it issuing from its primary source and followed it in its various developments. At the first glance, two facts strike us in the history of the kingship in France. It was in France that it adopted soonest and most persistently maintained its fundamental principle, heredity. In the other monarchical states of Europe, in England, in Germany, in Spain and in Italy, diverse principles, at one time election and at another right of conquest, have been mingled with or substituted for the heredity of the throne. Different dynasties have reigned, and England has had her Saxon, Danish and Norman kings, her Plantagenets, her Tudors, her Stuarts, her Nassaus, her Brunswicks. In Germany, and up to the 18th century, the empire, the sole central dignity, was elective and transferable. Spain was for a long while parcelled out into several distinct kingdoms, and since she attained territorial unity, the houses of Austria and Bourbon have both occupied her throne. The monarchy and the republic for many a year disputed and divided Italy, only in France was there, at any time during eight centuries, but a single king and a single line of kings. Unity and heredity, those two essential principles of monarchy, have been the invariable characteristics of the kingship in France. A second fact, less apparent and less remarkable, but nevertheless not without importance or without effect upon the history of the kingship in France, is the extreme variety of character, of faculties, of intellectual and moral bent, of policy and personal conduct amongst the French kings. In the long roll of thirty-three kings who reigned in France from Hugh Capet to Louis Sixteenth, there were kings wise and kings foolish, kings able and kings incapable, kings rash and kings slothful, kings earnest and kings frivolous, kings saintly and kings licentious, kings good and sympathetic towards their people, kings egotistical and concerned solely about themselves kings lovable and beloved, kings sombre and dreaded or detested. As we go forward and encounter them on our way, all these kingly characters will be seen appearing and acting in all their diversity and all their incoherence. Absolute monarchical power in France was, almost in every successive reign, singularly modified, being at one time aggravated and at another alleviated according to the ideas, sentiments, morals and spontaneous instincts of the monarchs. Nowhere else, throughout the great European monarchies, 
has the difference between kingly personages exercised so much influence on government and national condition. In that country the free action of individuals has filled a prominent place and taken a prominent part in the course of events. It has been shown how insignificant and inert, as sovereigns were, the first three successors of Hugh Capet. The goodness to his people displayed by King Robert was the only kingly trait which, during that period, deserved to leave a trace in history. The kingship appeared once more with the attributes of energy and efficiency on the accession of Louis the Sixth, son of Philip I. He was brought up in the monastery of Saint-Denis, which at that time had for its superior a man of judgment, the abbot Adam, and he then gave evidence of tendencies and received his training under influences worthy of the position which awaited him. He was handsome, tall, strong and alert, determined and yet affable. He had more taste for military exercises than for the amusements of childhood and the pleasures of youth. He was at that time called Louis the Wide Awake. He had the good fortune to find in the monastery of Saint-Denis a fellow-student capable of becoming a king's counsellor. Suga, a child born at Saint-Denis of obscure parentage, and three or four years younger than Prince Louis, had been brought up for charity's sake in the abbey, and the abbot Adam, who had perceived his natural abilities, had taken pains to develop them. A bond of esteem and mutual friendship was formed between the two young people, both of whom were disposed to earnest thought and earnest living. And when, in 1108, Louis the Wideawake ascended the throne, the monk Suga became his adviser whilst remaining his friend. A very small kingdom was at that time the domain belonging properly and directly to the King of France. Ile de France, properly so called, and a part of Orléans, Lorienais, pretty nearly the five departments of the Seine, Seine-et-Oise, Seine-Marne, Oise and Loire, besides, through recent acquisitions, French Vexin, which bordered on the Ile de France and had for its chief place Pontoise, being separated by the little river Ept from the Norman Vexin, of which Rouen was the capital. Half the countship of Saint and the countship of Bourges, such was the whole of its extent. But this limited state was as liable to agitation, and often as troublous and as toilsome to govern, as the very greatest of modern states. It was full of petty lords, almost sovereigns in their own estates, and sufficiently strong to struggle against their kingly suzerain, who had, besides, all around his domains, several neighbours more powerful than himself in the extent and population of their states. But, lord and peasant, layman and ecclesiastic, castle and country, and the churches of France, were not long discovering that, if the kingdom was small, it had verily a king. Louis did not direct to a distance from home his ambition and his efforts. It was within his own dominion, to check the violence of the strong against the weak, to put a stop to the quarrels of the strong amongst themselves, to make an end, in France at least, of unrighteousness and devastation, and to establish there some sort of order and some sort of justice, that he displayed by his energy and his perseverance. He was animated, says Suger, by a strong sense of equity. To air his courage was his delight. He scorned inaction. He opened his eyes to see the way of discretion. He broke his rest and was unwearied in his solicitude. Suga has recounted in detail sixteen of the numerous expeditions which Louis undertook into the interior to accomplish his work of repression or of exemplary chastisement. Bouchard, Lord of Montmorency, Matthew de Beaumont, Dreux de Mouchy-le-Chartel, Oblet de Roussy, Léon de Méon, 
Thomas de Marle, Hugh de Cressy, William de la Roche Guyon, Hugh de Brisset, and Amari de Montfort learned to their cost that the king was not to be braved with impunity. Bouchard, on taking up arms one day against him, refused to accept his sword from the hands of one of his people who offered it to him and said, by way of boast to the countess his wife, Noble countess, give thou joyously this glittering sword to the count thy spouse. He who taketh it from thee as count will bring it back to thee as king. In this very campaign, Bouchard, by his death, says Suga, restored peace to the kingdom, and took away himself and his war to the bottomless pit of hell. Hugh de Brisset had frequently broken his oaths of peace, and recommenced his devastations and revolts, and Louis resumed his course of hunting him down, destroyed the castle of Brisset, threw down the walls, dug up the wells, and raised it completely to the ground as a place devoted to the curse of heaven. Thomas de Marle, Lord of Cousy, had been committing cruel ravages upon the town and church of Léon, lands and inhabitants, when Louis, summoned by their complaints, repaired to Léon, and there, on the advice of the bishops and grandees, and especially of Raoul, the illustrious Count of Vermandois, the most powerful, after the king of the lords in this part of the country, he determined to go and attack the castle of Cousy, and so went back to his own camp. The people whom he had sent to explore the spot reported that the approach to the castle was very difficult, and in truth, impossible. Many urged the king to change his purpose in the matter, but he cried, Nay, what we resolved on at Léon stands. I would not hold back therefrom, though it were to save my life. The king's majesty would be vilified if I were to fly before this scoundrel. Forthwith, in spite of his corpulence, and with admirable ardour, he pushed on with his troops through ravines and roads encumbered with forests. Thomas, made prisoner and mortally wounded, was brought to King Louis, and by his order removed to Léon, to the almost universal satisfaction of his own folk and ours. Next day his lands were sold for the benefit of the public treasury, his ponds were broken up, and King Louis, sparing the country because he had the lord of it at his disposal, took the road back to Léon, and afterwards returned in triumph to Paris. Sometimes, when the people and their habitual protectors, the bishops, invoked his aid, Louis would carry his arms beyond his own dominions, by sole right of justice and kingship. It is known, said Suger, that kings have long hands. In 1121, the bishop of Clermont-Ferrand made a complaint to the king against William VI, Count of Auvergne, who had taken possession of the town, and even of the Episcopal Church, and was exercising therein unbridled tyranny. The king, who never lost a moment when there was a question of helping the church, took up with pleasure and solemnity what was, under these circumstances, the cause of God, and having been unable, either by word of mouth or by letters sealed with the seal of the king's majesty, to bring back the tyrant to his duty, he assembled his troops, and led into revolted Auvergne a numerous army of Frenchmen. He had now become exceeding fat, and could scarce support the heavy mass of his body. Anyone else, however humble, would have had neither the will nor the power to ride a horseback, but he, against the advice of all his friends, listened only to the voice of courage, braved the fiery sons of June and August, which were the dread of the youngest knights, and made a scoff of those who could not bear the heat, although many a time, during the passage of narrow and difficult swampy places, he was constrained to get himself held on by those about him. After an obstinate struggle, and at the intervention of William the Seventh, 
Duke of Aquitaine, the Count of Auvergne's suzerain, Louis fixed a special day for regulating and deciding in Parliament, at Orleans, and in the Duke's presence, between the Bishop and the Count, the points to which the Auvergnats had hitherto refused to subscribe. Then, triumphantly leading back his army, he returned victoriously to France. He had asserted his power, and increased his ascendancy, without any pretension to territorial aggrandizement. End of chapter 18, part 1